0: Uh, among the family, brothers and sisters in faith, speaking with each other. Uh, You and I have, and we need to note this and remember it all the way through, you and I have the luxury of debating from a place of safety and security, from a place where we don't have to worry about what's going to happen to us. And we need to remember that as we speak, People are fighting, people are dying, people are being held captive, people are fleeing their homes, people are grieving and suffering in ways that few of us have ever experienced and pray God uh, never will experience. And so we have this conversation in that privileged place. Let me mention to you a couple of stories from my history that perhaps will help you understand uh, the perspective that, that I personally bring. And all of us uh, bring our own perspective, uh, and we need to be aware of those things. Um, it was in 2008, I believe, um, that I visited Israel uh, and Jordan during that trip. And that's the only time I've ever actually been in Israel. But many of you have been at least once. Many of you have been several times. Everyone who goes understands that going to the land um, and, and being there, um, feeling it, hearing it, smelling it, traveling through it, all of those things uh, give you a new level of understanding and curiosity uh, about the area. That happens wherever you go, but perhaps especially so in places like Israel or Lebanon or Syria or Turkey or Greece, where the stories of the scriptures uh, originate. Um, Israel is um, really a tiny little piece of land from a Western person's perspective, especially a person who grew up in the Western part of the United States. Uh, the the whole nation of Israel itself is is not much bigger than San Diego County, really. Uh, that's something that you learn. You kind of you you can read the statistics, you can hear that said to you, but until you're actually there, it doesn't really settle in. Uh, being there gives you an appreciation or a better appreciation, at least, for the long and rich and complicated and sometimes peaceful, sometimes violent history of the place. Uh, So in 2008 was the time I was there. Then in 2016, um, as my life played itself out, as most of you know, I had the opportunity to go into Lebanon, into Syria, into Iraq, and I have made repeated visits, especially to Lebanon and to Syria, have been once to Iraq. And um, there was one particular set of experiences that, that really opened my eyes. On our trip to Israel, we did as so many uh, groups do. We went into the Golan Heights, up into the northeastern section of the nation of Israel. And as I say that, I have to say that that's a disputed fact because uh, the Golan Heights were taken over by Israel in one of the, the recent wars. We'll talk about that in the, in the, as we talk about the history. But when you go into the Golan Heights, uh, we were taken to the border with Syria. Uh, a border that is marked by a no-man's land, by huge walls, huge fences, listening posts, observation posts, military installations. Uh, And we were told, as we were looking from the uh, the Israeli side over to the Syrian side, we were told that we were looking over at one of the nations that was trying to destroy Israel, at at the bad guys, if you will. And there's truth in, in what was said there. But, and there's more to the story than that fast forward to 2016 our first trip into lebanon and then into syria when we went into syria we drove from Beirut into Damascus and drove immediately into the old part of Damascus, the walled center of the city that goes back 8,000 years of human habitation. And we were taken to a lovely restaurant and met the pastor of the Presbyterian Church in Damascus and met about half a dozen uh, of his elders Thankfully, most of them spoke English. So as we sat down to a, a beautiful uh, Middle Eastern feast, I found myself sitting next to one of the elders, and we exchanged names with each other. His name was Jehad Marina. And I've seen Jehad and uh, visited with him over Facebook, uh, seen him every other trip I've been on uh, into Syria. And I asked Jehad, as you would do when you're meeting someone, I said, Jehad, what, what do you do? What, what is your business, your occupation, your life? And he said, well, I have worked for the United Nations for the last 25 years as a peacekeeping observer looking at Syria from the Golan Heights. And what immediately struck me is that probably eight years earlier, I had been looking at him and he had been looking at me over the wall, through the fence, past the border, it, it was a little bit of a shock, to be honest with you, to be talking with an elder of the Presbyterian church who eight years ago I had been told was the enemy, the bad guy. Now, be assured, there are some Presbyterian elders that are my enemies, okay, that are bad guys. Uh, <laughs> but that's a, whole, that's a whole nother story. Then just last year, actually, last October, uh, we got to go into uh, Lebanon and again into Syria. And this time in our visit to Syria, uh, we made a, a long and somewhat difficult trip because of all of the uh, military checkpoints. We went to a small village called Ain Shara that is on the Syrian border with the Golan Heights. And I met another Presbyterian elder from the small congregation there. And as always, I asked him, "What, what have you done with your life? And he's a little bit of an older guy. And he said, well, I'm retired from the Air Force. Great. I know some retired Air Force people. I said, which Air Force? Well, the Syrian Air Force, of course. What did you do? I flew MiGs. And he proceeded to tell me about the Russian-made fighter jets that he had flown on behalf of the Syrian uh, Air Force. And then we had a long conversation about the politics of the Middle East. And so it's fascinating. Uh, As as an American, most people have conversations only with one side, (laughs) about only one side. But it's fascinating to go to the other side, if you will, and, and have conversations with each other. And so, let me say again that this conversation, as you well know, is complicated, it is many-faceted, it is highly charged with emotion for all of us, and that makes it difficult, but that also makes it all the more necessary. So, let's do this. I find that most people, myself included, uh, are really quite ignorant of the actual history The recent history, if you will, going back now over a hundred years, the history of the Middle East. And so I want to give a brief overview of that, and uh, I hope we've got some maps available uh, that are going to help us understand what this history is. Let's start here. In 1917, the British government issued what is called the Balfour Declaration, which said that it intended, the Empire of Britain, intended that one day there would be a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. Now, in 1917, this is at the outbreak of the First World War, in 1917, this area that we now call Israel, or if you're not from Israel, and if you're from the rest of the Middle East, you call it Palestine, this area was under the rule of the Ottoman Empire, an empire that had been in place for several hundred years. And so when the British declared this intention for a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, uh, it caused a huge ruckus. It was uh, very well received, of course. It was uh, lauded and appreciated Uh, by Jews who already were living there and then, of course, Jews who were living in so many other places because this gave them hope that there would someday be a homeland for them, that they would have the right to land in the Holy Land and the right to be in Jerusalem. Well, then when World War I ended, the Ottoman Empire essentially fell apart and it was divided up in many different ways and the Ottoman Empire conceded Palestine to British rule. This was called the British Mandate. It was given by the League of Nations. The League of Nations, in a sense, was the precursor to the United Nations. President Woodrow Wilson was one of the one of the champions of the League of Nations. The League eventually fell apart uh, before World War II. But the League of Nations Uh, in the destruction, the the disintegration is a better way to say it, of the Ottoman Empire, gave this land to to Britain. And that's what this first map is, okay? You see there the territory called Palestine and then the territory that was then called Transjordan. Transjordan, now we call it uh, uh, Jordan itself. You'll see that Syria was given to French control. Also, Lebanon was given to French control. Uh, Iraq was given to British control. So this essentially was kind of how the map was rejiggered uh, at the end uh, of World War I. Now, when the Balfour uh, Declaration was made and then the British mandate was given, there was a lot of criticism uh, from those who wondered and worried about what would happen to the people who were already living there. There were some Jews, there were some Christians. Of course, there were many, many Arabs, many, many Palestinians. There was concern about that, but but there was no particular answer to that. And so then after World War I and all the way up to World War II, okay? World War I ended. We just celebrated the end of World War I yesterday, right? 11-11. Uh, at the end of World War I, many, many Jews began to move into Palestine. They had heard of Britain's eventual intent to make it their homeland, and they started to move to Palestine. They did that for a lot of reasons. One reason was simply that now they could have hope that they could go back to the Holy Land. They also did it because they were beginning to experience more and more persecution, especially where so many of them were, in Germany, in Poland, in Russia. And then, of course, in the beginning of the 1930s, with the rise of the Nazi Party and the beginning of what you and I know as the Holocaust, even more and more began to move into this area. As more and more Jews moved into this area, there began to be frequent clashes, if you will, between the Palestinian Arabs and the Jewish migrants. Now, some of that happens anytime you have people moving from one place into another, okay? Just go to Texas or Arizona or Tennessee and ask what they think about Californians, (laughs) okay? Multiply that in its seriousness and its impact on life by many, many magnitudes, and you'll have a sense of what was going on. Well, at the end of World War II then... Remember, 1917, and then we go 30 years to about 1947. At the end of World War II, there still was no official action taken on the Balfour Declaration to create the homeland for the Jews. But in February of 1947, the British proposed that the United Nations take over this entire area. And then let's go to Map 2. When the British proposed that the United Nations take over, then the United Nations adopted a resolution that called for the creation of two states, the state of Israel, the state of Palestine, and that those two states would be administered by the United Nations. Okay? This is a map now of the partition plan that was proposed by the United Nations. There you can see, still have Lebanon, Syria, Transjordan, and Egypt, but in the white and kind of the tan picture there, you have the sections in tan that would be the Arab state and the sections in white that would be the Jewish state. Now, the Palestinians and most of the other Arab nations actually refused this plan. It was not put into place. And in May of 1948, about a year later, May of 1948, Israel simply declared independence and five Arab nations, those primarily around uh, Israel, around Palestine, attacked. A war began. And during that time, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians left the area. They were forced off their lands by the war. And in that war, Israel won more territory than had actually been proposed uh, as the division into the two-state solution, uh, more territory than than they were actually given. Uh, And so uh, not only did they keep the parts that were uh, awarded in a sense by the United Nations, but they went into the West Bank uh, and into uh, the Gaza Strip. Uh, Jordan essentially took control uh, of the West Bank area. Egypt took control uh, of Gaza. And so let's go to the third map now. The third map, and this will be the result of the armistice that occurred from this first war that started when Israel declared independence. So this would be in in, uh, 1949 now, okay? As the map says, these are the 1949 armistice lines. Um, the, uh, the kind of reddish color, the tiny little strip, the Gaza Strip, and then the West Bank controlled uh, by Jordan, the Gaza Strip controlled by Egypt, and then the rest controlled uh, by Israel. You'll see uh, that Israel controls more territory here than was originally proposed by the United Nations. Now, just so we have this in mind a little bit, the Gaza Strip, as you've been hearing in the news, the Gaza Strip is only about 140 square miles of land and a population of a little over 2 million people. The West Bank is uh, about 2,200 square miles of land and a population of over uh, 3,000 people. Okay, so from 1949, this situation existed, and you'll see that on the map, the borders are drawn with dotted lines, okay? Okay. They're drawn with dotted lines because this was the reality, but this was not the accepted legal situation. None of the nations around Israel accepted these borders. They did not accept the legitimacy of the existence of the Jewish state. Fast forward then, not so fast really, but go to 1967, and what we call the Six-Day War broke out. And Israel then captured and occupied the West Bank that had been controlled by Jordan, and also East Jerusalem, a part of the city of Jerusalem, and also Gaza, the Gaza Strip, and also the Sinai Peninsula, and also the Golan Heights. You will see there by Syria now the Golan Heights. Up until 1967, that was part of Syria. It was taken over uh, by Israel. And again, in this war, many, many Palestinians became refugees. Then, from 1967 to 1982, in 1982, Israel and Egypt signed a peace treaty, and Egypt recognized Israel as a legitimate nation. That takes us to map number five then. Let's go to that map. And you will see here that the line between Egypt and Israel is now a solid line. That was, in a sense, the first actual concrete, legitimized by more than one nation agreement about the existence of the state of Israel. Well, of course, nobody was entirely happy with this in 1987, five years later, the Palestinians mounted an uprising against the state of Israel. It was called the Intifada. You've heard that term before. That simply means an uprising. Um, and that uprising ended in yet another uh, peace agreement, this time between Israel in 1993, between Israel and the PLO, the Palestine, Palestinian Liberation Organization that was led by Yasser Arafat. Those of you who've been paying attention for a while will remember that name, Yasser Arafat. Those were the Oslo Accords that were in a sense brokered by the United States. That's when William, uh, I almost said Billiam, William Jefferson Clinton, Bill Clinton was president, the Oslo Accords. And in those accords, the PLO officially finally recognized the right of Israel to exist. Okay, from 1948 until 1993, the Palestinians did not uh, officially recognize Israel's right to exist. Then in 2000, between 2000 and 2005, there was another uprising, another intifada that ended up with Palestine being in control of the West Bank and Gaza, the PLO. But then in 2006, just five years, uh, just a year after that, that second intifada was over, Uh, the Hamas party came to power. And the Hamas party in an election was given control of the Gaza Strip. Hamas took control in the Gaza Strip, leaving the PLO in control uh, of the West Bank. And then in 2007, Hamas actually, in a military action, took over complete control of, of Gaza. And Israel responded by creating a blockade by building uh, and reinforcing a wall, a fence, a no-man's land by creating a a blockade between Israel and Gaza. And so, since 2007, uh, things have gotten, in a sense, worse for Gaza. Uh, The United Nations thinks that about 81% of the population of Gaza lives in poverty, 63% Um, suffer from what is today called food insecurity and there is a 46% unemployment rate, okay? So now these maps, thanks to the BBC for the maps, these maps and this little history gives you a sense of what has been going on. So you've got the British Mandate and then the UN Partition Plan and then the Declaration of Independence and then the war that followed and then the War of 67 and then a couple of peace treaties since then. And let's go to the final map. This is, you're seeing some of these maps if you pay attention to the news. Uh, This is actually a map of Gaza itself uh, that will tell you where the urban areas are and that kind of mustard colored. You'll see some gray areas that are refugee camps, and then you'll see just two border crossings. Uh, a couple down uh, with Egypt, uh, the Rafa crossing, of course, has gotten lots of attention in the press. That's where some of the, the, the folks are getting across the border these days. And then in the far uh, northeastern section, the Edits crossing. Uh, so this gives you a picture of Gaza, okay? So that's kind of a very quick sort of history. If there are any actual historians here, you're going to say, Jack, that was woefully inadequate. Yes, it was. But there you go. Now you've got that. Let's talk a little bit about theology as it relates to this area. Uh, And by theology, I want to talk uh, in very broad terms about the different religious groups that have involvement and interest here. Uh, and, And these are kind of my summaries of these things. On one side, you have what we in this country often refer to as radical Islamic fundamentalism that has always said and still always says that Israel does not have a right to exist. This is, in a sense, the official position of Hamas. Hamas's declared intent is to wipe Israel and Israelis and all Jews off the map. That's a very radical position. You also have uh, what I would call radical Jewish Zionism. In our visit in 2008, we visited with um, a middle-aged woman uh, who uh, identified herself as a radical Jewish Zionist, and in her opinion, um, only, only Jews should live in Israel, and everybody else should either get out or be killed. So it's kind of the, the diametric opposite, if you will, of radical Islamic fundamentalism. And then there is something called Christian Zionism. And that's where I've been receiving most of the questions Christian Zionism. Now, remember that Christians do not agree necessarily on how we're supposed to look at Israel and what the history of Israel is. But there are many Christians who believe that God gave the land to Israel, Israel has a right to exist, and that Christians should do anything and everything we possibly can to support the nation of Israel regardless of what Israel does, regardless of what Israel says, because they are God's chosen people, okay? That is radical, what I call radical Christian Zionism. There is also a Christian position that is called, this gets even better, folks, supersessionism. Supersessionism, okay? What many Christians have believed from very early on in Christianity, by the way, is that you know, the nation of Israel ceased to exist shortly after the time of Jesus, some would argue before the time of Jesus. In the, uh, the late 700s before Jesus, the northern part of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. In the early 500s, 587, the southern part of Israel where Jerusalem is was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. The Israelis, the Jews at that point in time, Israeli was not a term. The Jews were allowed to return by Cyrus in the Persian Empire, but the nation never really regained its footing. Eventually, it was wiped out by the Romans. And in 74 AD, with the destruction of the temple and the final destruction of the last uh, Jewish uh, outpost garrison at Masada, that was the end of Israel. Um, People began to believe in the church that there was a new Israel, actually. It's not a term that occurs in the New Testament, but there are many terms we use that do not occur in the New Testament. People began to see that that the church inherited this position as God's blessed and chosen people meant to bless and choose, uh, to to bless the, the rest of the world. Now, Christians argue about that. Some Christians say, no, Israel is still the chosen people, Israel is still meant to exist in that land, in that place. And so there's an open argument going on there. There's an open argument, of course, in Islam and also in Judaism. When we say, what do the Muslims believe? What do the Jews believe? What do the Christians believe? You have to say they believe all kinds of things and they don't always agree with each other. There are many, many Muslims who believe in the right of Israel to exist, who actually historically have coexisted peacefully. With Jews and with Christians. The same is true of Jews. The same is true of Christians. And so there are also some moderate views, if you will. I haven't given names to them. Uh, but, but the moderates, whether from Jewish or Christian or Islamic or other philosophies and beliefs, the moderates say, look, everybody has a right to exist. Everybody has a right to their religion and the practice of it, regardless of what they believe. There is no place for anything like anti-Semitism, for hatred and extermination of Jews or Muslims or Christians or anybody else. And it has tended to be those from the moderate perspective who have historically lived at peace, sometimes an uneasy peace, sometimes a pretty good peace with each other. This comes as a shock to most modern Americans, most modern Christians, to hear that for much of history there has been great strife and warfare among and between these groups, but also there have been long periods of relative peace and prosperity uh, among all of these groups. And there still is in some of those folks a a hope for a uh, so-called two-state solution, Uh, So, the only thing I want to add into this uh, kind of theological overview is the idea that I think actually would represent Jesus, and I'm not Jesus, and we have to be careful when we say we're speaking for Jesus, but I cannot conceive of a Jesus who would exclude anyone, who would hate anyone, uh, who would kill anyone, who would promote superiority of one over another to the extent that everybody else has to get out. Now, that's a theological conversation. Let's have a little bit of a pastoral conversation. And hang on, you're going to have a chance to talk in a minute. There are all kinds of things of which you and I are aware, but we need to be aware, and we need to lift them up and hold them out in front of us. All kinds of things that go on in us and in all people as we talk about this kind of history and this kind of situation. There is, of course, incredible anger, and many of us are angry. There is incredible hatred. There's a lot of hatred to go around. There is a sense that we need revenge. We need revenge. People are fearful, afraid for themselves, for their children, for their future. There's a lot of indiscriminate killing that goes on. There's a lot that goes on in us that is of pastoral concern. The attack on October 7, of course, was immoral, indefensible, absolutely despicable. It was horrible, but it's nothing new. I'm in the midst of reading a book called A Biography of Jerusalem, and some of you in this church have read that book, A Story of the History of Jerusalem, And what happened on October 7 and what has been happening since uh, is nothing new. There are plenty of folks expressing concern, of course, anger, fear, hatred, grief, disillusionment over loss of life, Israeli life, Palestinian life, the loss of life of children. There's grief, there's loss. There's a lot of conversation about dehumanization. That's not a term we often use, but we need to know what that term means and see it when it exists, dehumanization. It is very easy when someone has done something terrible to say that that person is acting like an animal. They are an animal. They're not human. But that's what happens when we start to devalue other people that eventually leads to their destruction. Adolf Hitler and his people realized that the best way to get rid of the Jews was to convince the German population that Jews were not really people. The United States government and many leaders in the United States realized that the best way to get our armies to throw Native Americans off their land and to massacre them if necessary was to dehumanize them and say that they were savages, they were less than human. Same thing happened in the creation of slavery in the United States of America. Every group in every history... And every person is guilty of dehumanizing other people. That's been going on here in spades. There's also pastoral concern. There's stuff going on on inside of us that's calling out for righteousness, for justice. Where is justice? Where is righteousness? Where is God in all of this? Some people say God is not here in all of this. The Bible does not ever affirm that. And then at the end of the day, we're kind of left with with our understanding and our remembering what Jesus said to love our enemies. What do we do with that? So those are all things that we have to, to pay attention to. Now... Just a couple more comments, and then we'll go to conversation. And by the way, get this in your minds. If you would like to ask a question or make a brief comment, we would invite you to come to this microphone that's at the center here and uh, to speak into that, not only so that everyone can hear you, but also so that this goes into the live stream and into the recording that will be made available. Um, I have a list of articles, um, URLs that will take you to articles that I have found helpful. Some of them uh, I disagree with, but they're all helpful in the conversation. Um, I want to thank publicly so that I don't get into copyright trouble and get sued. Uh, I want to thank ABC and the BBC and the New York Times and several other Christian sites uh, for a lot of this information, and especially for the maps. Those came from a particularly helpful uh, BBC article that shares the the history with you. Um, I want to say that we should never be afraid to talk. We should never be afraid to ask our questions and to, to discuss. We should always study these things and that's why you guys are here, is to study. And we need to deal with, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation. We need to deal with our tendency to ignore and neglect difficult topics. We need to deal with our tendency to say, well, this is complicated. I'm afraid. I'm angry. I'm worried. I already know what's going on here. Uh, there's nobody who knows everything that's going on here. If somebody had it figure out, had it figured out how to solve this situation, it would have already been done. And so we are in, our, in this conversation in a way holding ourselves accountable, if you will, uh, to our responsibility to deal with the world that, that Jesus loves. So let me stop there and let me invite any questions or comments that you would have. Come to the mic, please. You don't, need to be, you don't need me to recognize you, just start moving this way. There's some actually, as is always the case, there's some seats right in the front that are wide open here <laughs> that you can come down and occupy and get ready to ask a question or, or make a comment. Yes.
1: So I guess I have a comment and then a question.
0: Um, as Americans mm-hmm. and as Christian Americans,
1: um, ignorance certainly is going to kill us all. So we better start being smart because there are one quarter of the population in Gaza who are Greek Orthodox. Israelis bombing of a 1700 year old Greek Orthodox Church is inexcusable. When they say the fact that the the Hamas attacks were their 9-11, we didn't, we didn't take 9-11 and obliterate Saudi Arabia because every terrorist, every radical, every dehumanized savage was from Saudi. I don't understand the, the nuances of all this, nor do I condone the obliteration Of innocent life. What are we supposed to do as Christians to hold our tongue when we speak out of the injustices, but then are admonished for our understanding that there are two sides to this issue? Two wrongs do not solve a right, and this overbearing of tens of thousands of innocent lives, Christian and Muslim both, is not right. The Greek Orthodox Church there, I personally have family friends who hold the key to the Greek Orthodox Church in Jerusalem, and the Al-Nashashibi family have a right to exist as Christians. So,
0: what are we supposed to do as Christian Americans? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, That is indeed one of the the deepest questions. Let me say a couple of things in answer. Uh, One is, and this is a comment uh, that came from from one of you uh, as we were preparing for this... um, It is true that several things can be true at the same time, and even though they seem to contradict each other, they are true. That's the nature of a complicated situation, is that there's lots of different angles from which we must look at something. Um, There are, to to my understanding, uh, there are three uh, churches in Gaza itself. One of them, the, the Greek Orthodox Church that you talked about, Uh, And it is true uh, that the church has been bombed. Uh, It is true that many Christians have lost their lives. Um, It is also uh, held out for us uh, from the Israeli side uh, that Hamas, as did ISIS before it, uh, Hamas sometimes stations uh, soldiers or puts uh, uh, military equipment uh, in uh, hospitals schools, churches, um, and the argument is made that the only way to destroy them is to create what we inelegantly call collateral damage and innocent people must die. Um, The anger that we feel for that is certainly, in my mind, justifiable anger. It is simply wrong that someone who is an innocent bystander regardless of whether they're an infant just born or an 87-year-old grandmother. It is simply wrong that anybody who is so-called innocent would die in a war. We should be angry about that. We do need to talk about what we do with anger. I'll leave that aside for the moment. Um, It is also true that in every war, in all of history, innocent people have died. Lots of innocent people, as a matter of fact. Um, I'll remind you that in, uh, in World War II, uh, which was a much larger conflict simply in terms of geography and duration uh, and, and number of people involved, in World War II, uh, it is estimated that 70 million, 70 million people died as a result of the war. Only a few million of them were actual combatants, soldiers. The rest were civilian, if you will. Uh, that number, of course, includes those who were killed in the Holocaust, which was not only Jews, primarily Jews, uh, also homosexual persons, also Gypsies, uh, also intellectuals, some Christians, uh, because of their uh, their opposition. Um, At any rate, there there were, um, I forget what the number is, 12 or 15 million uh, Russian citizens who died. Of course, Japanese. Uh, So there is always collateral damage in war. My my observation of that is that because warfare eventually devolves into mass craziness where lots of innocent people die. And by the way, I don't... I don't discount the loss of life of of soldiers. (laughs) I've met very few soldiers who actually ever wanted to go and kill somebody or wanted to go die. And and all loss of life, whether so-called innocent or not, is important to God. It's important to us as Christians. Um, But the fact that all warfare eventually devolves into such horrible, horrible facts as the one that you have raised here for us and highlighted for us should make us work all that much harder at preventing war, shouldn't it? Because it becomes so, so very convoluted and destructive on all sides, on all sides. That's the way I would answer that for you, just briefly. Thank you for raising that. Someone else, if you want to ask a question, go ahead and come up to the microphone or come and sit while somebody else is is commenting. That's great, so we can keep the conversation going. Yeah, David.
2: Hi, Jack. Uh, you know, I think your characterization of the history, I think, was... Um, I don't think it was accurate, mm-hmm. and I think that it was too brief, and I think it was very biased. Mm-hmm. So that's my, I just want to give my opinion on that. Uh, as far as uh, any of the history justifying Hamas and the murder of babies and kidnapping of children. Cannot be justified, regardless of your history lesson. There is no way to do that. So, no, I, 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 I just don't see how you can sure, say sure. there's a history here. There's been conflict for a lo- long time, but somehow that justifies the murder of children and babies, and rape and kidnapping, and and that. Uh, you know, uh, I think Israel has a right to go out and and eliminate that threat again. Hamas has said repeatedly from their leaders that this is, you know, the first inning. That they're going to do this again and again and again. They haven't said, oh, we're sorry. Here, the, let's let's give the kidnapped children back or the people back. They're, they're not saying that. They're saying they're going to do it more. Yeah. So I think Israel really has to to, to fight this fight. I think that um, uh, there are going to be collateral damages. From what I've read, and I've read a lot on this, and I've listened to a lot, I think Israel is doing a really uh, as the best job they can to try to. Uh, not have collateral damage of innocence, and I feel for the Palestinians, and I think the loss of children there and lives there is important also. But, you know, you're dealing with a group that doesn't, that they really look at that as a, an opportunity to put those people in harm's way so that yeah. they can't, they're protecting themselves while they live in Qatar, in, you know, with billions of dollars stolen from the UN. So, and the United States, anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, thank you for that. Let me, let me, say, let me say a couple things about this. Number one, any brief history lesson is going to be necessarily full of holes in some sense. The history I shared with you uh, is what came both from ABC and from BBC. There are summations of that history. It would be helpful for us all probably to do more study of all of that history realizing that any person's version of history is biased. There is no such thing as unbiased history because the events that you choose to tell the way in which you choose to tell them and the interpretation that you give to them is biased. That's, that's simply a, a reality. Um, let me also say I think that there's a difference between explanation and justification. I agree with you. There is no justification in any way, shape or form uh, for what we 'll just summarize as the atrocities committed on October seven there simply is no justification that from any uh, moral or religious perspective, but there is information to be learned by studying the nature of the situation that leads to this situation. Some of it is radical, uh, fundamentalist. Uh, Islam, and, and in some ways even beyond Islam, because I don't want to throw all Islam under the bus, uh, it is simply the nature of pure human evil to, to kill babies, okay, to kill innocent people. Um, at, usually it comes uh, through the, a process of dehumanization, where you convince yourself that what you are killing, who you are killing, is not human, Okay? You can read similar justification uh, in the theology and philosophy and political rhetoric that led to the establishment and perpetuation of slavery in the United States of America. You can read the same thing that led to the extermination of Native American peoples in the United States of America. Uh, And none of it is defensible. I certainly agree with you in that. I would also agree with you that it is Israel's right to defend itself against that. Um, I believe that it was right uh, for the allied powers to stand up against the Axis powers to eliminate that power that was uh, exterminating uh, Jewish people. It's right to fight. I completely agree with that. Part of the conversation comes in, and it's a difficult thing because it's never clean on anybody's side, and that is to how do you fight and to what extent do you fight? Um, there are lots of voices uh, in, uh, in, in the, the, uh, the Jewish world as there are in the Christian world, the Islamic world, uh, and even the world that you can't describe from a religious perspective. There are lots of voices that are saying Israel has to kill innocent people, so be it. Others saying maybe there's a different way. There, there is a legitimate Conversation to be held there about what's the best way to do that. And let's remember that I said we're having this conversation from the luxury of being here, not on the front line, so to speak. Uh, and so that is a real conversation that, ju- that has to be had. Back to, to my answer to Suhail the, the, the deepest tragedy of all is that we find ourselves in this place. Now it's clear that Hamas's uh, approach to this is to, in a sense, is to force Israel to kill innocent people. And what a brilliant thing it is from the perspective of Hamas to turn Israel into the bad guy by making Israel kill innocent people. Um, I didn't include this quote here, but I'll I'll say it now. Um, Not long after the events of October 7, um, I I saw a quote from Golda Meir. Do you remember Golda Meir, one of the premiers of Israel? Um, I think, was it David Ben-Gurion who was the first one? I think David Ben-Gurion was the first, okay, and then uh, Golda came a little bit later, but um, I, I, I didn't check this out on Snopes, so I'm not sure that it was Golda Meir, okay, but this quote was attributed to Golda Meir. Golda Meir said, we can forgive the Arabs for killing our children, but we cannot forgive them for forcing us to kill theirs. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, That's part of the conversation. Someone else, yes.
2: Uh, Jack, I disagree with the previous gentleman. Uh, Welcome to the Christian Church. (laughs) Your presentation was fine, even though I'm not in love with the news sources. I still think your presentation (laughs) was just fine. A different tact, uh, ongoing, several prominent uh, Christian organizations and Christian churches suggest that we're seeing signs of the end times and maybe in the end times. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering your perspective on that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for raising that question. That has been a big question in in Christian conversation. Um, There is a line of thought, um, a a whole body of, of theology in Christianity, Um, that that says that books like Revelation, books like Daniel will say to us uh, that um, as a timeline for the end of history when Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ comes back, that the nation of Israel will be restored, that there will be, as a result of Israel's existence, um, a huge uh, world war that makes all the other world wars pale by comparison, that Russia, the United States, China will get into a war. There will be a huge final battle at Armageddon. Uh, and the, the end of history as we know it will come. Jesus will come back to earth, put everything right, and everything's golden then. That's a very quick summary of that, of that theological line, okay? Um, I have to say at the outset, that might happen. Because it's the future, I cannot tell you what will happen. Neither can you tell me what will happen. Neither can those who propose to be students of Scripture to have figured out what the plan is for the end times. Let me say a couple things about the end times. One is that ever since the first century and moving into the second century, and perhaps even during the time of Jesus, certainly during the years right after Jesus, there are people in the church who have said the end is here. Okay? For 2,000 years, there are people who have been saying, all the prophecies are coming true, all the facts of history are lined up just perfectly, and it's all going to be over. Okay? Um, I first started seriously reading as an adult in the 1970s, um, as a high school kid and then a college kid. Uh, and at that point in time, there was an extremely popular book called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. He wrote many, a lot of other books, and he predicted that very soon the world would be done. Um, That was 50 years ago. Uh, For 2,000 years, we have been wrong about predicting the end of history and predicting the the situations historically that would have to obtain. Now, it's true that Israel exists as a state once again, and it has existed since 1948, although there are some who say that the modern Israel does not equate with ancient Israel. That's a whole other conversation. Um, What I would have to say is that um, my reading of Scripture, and this is a particular Christian perspective, is that the Bible is not interested in predicting for us the end of the world. The Bible does not give us a blueprint, that what Scripture tells us, and you have studied Revelation with me, many of you before, what Scripture tells us is what Jesus said, that we don't know what the end is going to be, we don't know when it's going to come, We don't know what's going to happen. Jesus said, I don't know myself, okay? What we do know is that whatever happens, God is there and God wins. God wins, okay? I think personally to me it is theologically irresponsible to suggest that the creation of the modern state of Israel and everything that's going on is God's plan for the end of all history, and whatever Israel does is perfectly fine because God is in it and the end of the world is coming. Uh, I do not think that the modern state of Israel uh, is any more religious or righteous or holy than any other modern state in the sense that all states, all nations, are comprised of human beings. And I recently heard a sermon, actually, about the fact that all people are sinners <laughs> and, and all nations fall short, you know. I'm not suggesting that Israel is wrong necessarily, and I've just said to you, Israel is right in defending itself, okay? I'm simply saying that if you take a, a radical, what some would call a radical Christian Zionist position and say, well, this is God's plan, Right? Um, we're in very dangerous territory when we say that. Um, part of the conversation has to go back to the Old Testament when we when we hear that you know God has said to to the Hebrew slaves, go in and take over the land of the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Hittites. When God says, go wipe all those people out. This is your land. Okay, that language is there in the Old Testament. That is the language that many Christian people lift up to say it's okay. And this is where radical uh, Jewish Zionism comes from, that it's okay to wipe out anybody who stands in the way of God's plan and God planned for this to be my homeland, okay? All that language is there. There's no question of it. We must admit that. On the other hand, or with that great theological term, but, there's more to the story, okay? The more to the story is that it's very clear that ancient Israel never fulfilled God's command, if you will, if that's what it was, to wipe out everybody else. There is also in the Old Testament a stream of theological thought that tells us that Israel is meant to take care of the orphans, the widows, and then a lot of people leave off this third category, the strangers living among you, the foreigners living among you. There are many non-Jews, who are incorporated into the history of Israel and subsequently into the history of Jesus. And so there is an, an equal and, and, and I would argue opposite and even more than opposite story, a stronger story from the Scriptures that rises up that say that, that um, God means for all of God's people to live together in peace and harmony. God does not mean for anybody to wipe anybody else out. And for that, you, I think you eventually have to look at Jesus It's very clear that Jesus never condoned an uprising against the Romans to throw the Romans out and create an ethnically, historically pure state of Israel. Jesus never said that. Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, meaning that his kingdom is different from all the other kingdoms, our human kingdoms, We are meant to be a kingdom that embraces everyone and brings everyone into a relationship with Jesus and a relationship whereby we are enabled to get along with each other. That's a very quick summary of that conversation. Thank you for bringing that up. We got another questioner sitting here ready to go.
3: Actually, it's kind of a statement, but I had the unique opportunity when I was 20. I was teaching violin, and I got a student who was from... A Palestinian family, and they had been Palestinian refugees in the 1948 takeover of Palestine by the Israelis. And they told me horrible stories of being chased out of their home. And they—he was an electrical engineer, and um, but now he was here in the United States after living for 15 years in a refugee camp with his children and his wife, and he was working in a gas station. His upset, his anger, and it was too, he was, anger is too strong a word, but his uh, irritation with it all was that we were Christians. We lived in the land of Jesus, and we followed the teachings of Jesus, and they chased us out of our home. Yeah. So from the time I was 20, so the last. 50 plus years I've understood that there was a real tension that had nothing to do really with religion. It was with ethnic power. They were Arabs, they were proud that they were Arabs. They were Palestinians. and So a lot of this tension to me is not about Islam versus Judaism versus Christianity in the mix. It's about power, and it's about ethnic control. Yeah, yeah. And when I read about the settlements in the West Bank, that is Israeli ethnic control. It's not Jews trying to use a Jewish message that it's, we want control of that land, we want economic control.
0: Because they have
3: gone in and destroyed the olive groves by the thousands that are 25% of the Palestinian economy. Yeah. On the, so I I am torn. I, I agree. It was atrocious what happened on October seventh, but as you said, <laughs> it's happened since the beginning of time. I take issue with the claim that of the con. The discussion of dehumanization. Mm-hmm. And calling the people that do those kind of things animals. Animals don't do that. It's only humans. Yeah. Only humans. So if there's no... Dehumanization, I guess we would all be very peaceful and loving, loving and only going out and killing if we had to to, to eat.
0: Yeah, yeah.
3: So... Um, in yeah, that's, that, that's a fascinating I, point. <laughs> yeah, I want you to think, about, I think we have to think about that, that only humans do this. And humans do it in the context of power yeah. and control. Yeah. It's not about religion, I don't think.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think you raised up for us, and, and, and all of you who have made comments uh, have raised up for us truth and the complexity of the nature of truth in all of this and the, the incredible pain that's involved there. Yes, yes. Okay, we got to go to you because you were sitting down, and then Celeste will go to you.
4: Thank you, Pastor Jack. I'm so short here. Um, I I loved your presentation, and my academics are in Arabic studies, and I think you did a great job with the history. Um, I think that there's different dynamics, right? We have the three different dynamics that I see. I see the dynamics of the humanitarian side, the humanitarian voices, so um, we're going to say no, it's it just, yes, there was 1,400 Israeli deaths and now we have 8,000 Palestinian deaths and how are we going to push 2 million people into Egypt, like where's the fairness in that? And then there's the political sides, which I'm not even going to go into that, there's the political side of power and what everything she just said, and then there's the church and everything, you've covered everything today. So I'm really grateful for your insight and your knowledge, uh, you know, that we hear so much social media and every, the preachings that we're in the end of times and, and, and as a Christian that, you know, we think, okay, I'm going to surrender my opinions and everything to God and my concerns to God. And, and you know what the good news is when we're, we're in the time of grace. We're in the time of grace where the Bible says seek for God while he can still be found and we can still, you know, we pray um, God's will be here on earth as it is in heaven. What could be greater than that? And that's where I found my peace as a Christian because, yes, I have a lot of emotions and a lot of opinions on the humanitarian and the political side. But I was like, okay, so what do we do at the end of times, which is roll over and and be depressed or we we're gonna pray for you know for prosperity and for our children and we're gonna you know here in this country we're blessed because we could have a mosque next to a church and we could do interfaith activities and we have you know next to a synagogue and we do interfaith charity events and holiday events together and I think mainly the, the, the reason for that is because we have the separation of church and state. Here, nobody, we could have a peaceful service of any religion and the White House is not up for grabs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I think that's the main thing. And, but thank you, I really are grateful for that you've covered all three dynamics that involves everything. And, and even in the services lately. You know, I found that the preachings and the scriptures, they really go to where we really need to focus. Romans is that we need to focus on preaching the gospel. So my responsibility as a Christian is not cheer on what's happening in Israel, but to really focus on preaching the gospel, praying for everyone to find hope and find salvation and find, um, find Jesus. That's my job as a Christian because I can't change everything else anything else. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Yep. Celeste. And we'll we'll wind up in about three minutes here.
5: Um, Thank you, Jack, for sharing the history. I agree with everything. So I grew up in the Middle East. Um, I lived in Egypt, and I was there during the Six-Day War. And then I lived in Lebanon. Um, for seven years when I was uh, from 10 to 17 years old. And I was there during the Civil War when it started and I was almost killed as a Christian by Muslims um, Because they knew uh, the, if you go a town, a Christian town, you know, they come in and they try to find more uh, Christians to kill. But it was all also, it's very political, different factions. I have a lot of friends in Lebanon who were Palestinian Christians who were kicked out. They come from grandparents who were kicked out from um, Palestine and uh, during the 1948 war. And because they're Christians, they were able to integrate into the society and they were educated. But My heart really goes a lot, um, both Israeli, Israel and The Palestinians. What happened? um, November in seven. seven, No, wait. October was it? Seven. October. October. (laughs) Was horrible, and there was. I mean, it's just awful. And these are extremists, and these are not the regular Muslims. And it's. And then all all the war that happened after. And for me. My heart breaks because of Lebanon and Hezbollah, what's happening in the South. Always the Christians are in the middle, whether Israel, whether it's the Arab who are Muslims. They're always second-class citizens. And it's really a difficult situation. The only thing for me, I say as a Christian, I pray for both sides. I pray for Hamas. I pray that what's happening in the Middle East is really something positive among Muslims. A lot of visions, Jesus is coming in dreams and visions. So I'm praying for that, for the Hamas, for any extreme, whether Israeli, like I, I don't, I'm not happy with the settlements. It's, I don't, I don't think it's the right thing. So whether extremists from both sides, I'm praying that God will reveal himself to them. That's the only thing that gives me peace. Yeah. And also helping, like you mentioned today, if anyone wants to help financially, that's another way also to help. So that's just coming to Jesus and asking Jesus to uh, transform lives.
0: Yes, okay. yes, absolutely. Thank you for that statement. It's, um, it's easy to move to a place where we don't want to talk anymore, <laughs> um, where, where we just kind of give up with everything. And, um, and still we have hope, do we not? Yeah. Okay, final comment, final question. Pastor Jack, I, I know you have a bit of a, more of a nuanced position on this, so this is more a question for everyone, but as Americans, why should we continue to send our blessings and support the state of Israel when in 1967 they attacked one of our, our U.S. ships, they killed hundreds of our servicemen in the USS Liberty incident. And I'm sure many of those were brothers of faith. Yeah, yeah, good question. I, the, um, in every war, in every situation, there are horrible things that go on. It, it is obviously, it's partly political, it's partly theological uh, to think about who is it that the United States supports, who does the United States not support, uh, and how do we do that? Um, I'm thankful that in the United States we can have that conversation and, and not worry uh, that, uh, about reprisal or not worry that we'll be silenced. Um, but I'm also aware that any time you choose to support one side, that there are other concerns and other questions and other issues. This is almost, uh, this is almost like a divorce <laughs> between two people. Um, every divorce requires two people. Uh, and, and it's the nature of human life that we take sides, uh, and, and we have to do that. Uh, to stay neutral is not to not take a side. <laughs> um, and that's part of, the, part of the conundrum of living human life is that we live in the midst of this whole mess. Um, and part of what I'm interested in is in preventing the mess in the first place because the mess takes us to a point where we have no choice but to do evil. Isn't that a terrible place to be where you have no choice but to do evil? Can't we get to a place where we are not given that choice, we're not forced into that? Uh, And the place where we're not forced into that is as we continue to learn to live as Jesus would have us live. I realize that's extremely difficult for nations to do, and yet I see evidence in some nations that we've learned a little bit about the way of Jesus. Uh, The United States of America, for all of its problems, is a place that's full of people who used to try to kill each other. Ask the Scots and the English and the Irish about that. Right? You can start there. And, and, and now we don't try to kill each other. Um, I grew up in New Mexico uh, among uh, Anglo people and Spanish people and Indian people, all of who used to try to kill each other. I have that blood, all three kinds, inside of me. I'm not trying to kill me. And so, at some point, we have to have hope and work towards that hope of getting to the place where none of this goes on anymore. And so, that's what we're working toward, as messy and as terrible as it can be. So, thank you for that question. Let me bring us to a close, since we, uh, none of us are agreed to be here indefinitely. Um, let, me, let me suggest that… Um, as you have further questions, comments, resources, material, I'm always willing to look at something, always willing to, to entertain, uh, obviously, uh, challenges uh, and, and corrections and additions to everything that I think, um, and I hope that you would, would feel the same about that. Uh, that's an important uh, value, that's an important dynamic that needs to happen in this community of faith. And in our conversation, I hope then that we can model for the rest of the world what it is for people to have an adult conversation and, and walk away still part of the same family. So, God bless you all for staying. God be with us. God bless Israel. God bless Palestine. God bless people everywhere who are simply trying to love each other. Thanks for being with us. It's time for my nap, and it's time for yours.